Have you ever read a good book that was thought-provoking and wanted to share it with your friends? Well, you come to the right place because that's what we do here. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf with your hosts, Lennon Givens, Walter Atkins, and Dr. Harvey Hinton III. A Real Talk book review podcast where we give you our raw commentary on our thoughts. Enjoy. Today we have joining with us someone who is very close to me in and outside the frat. I reached out to my line brother and told him that I'm trying to grow my podcast to full host and the vision I had for it. And he gladly accepted the challenge. We started our journey together seeking out Omega and ended up on the same procession that crossed the burning sands. We ended up with a sum total of one brother with 17 movable parts. You will have to pledge to understand what that means. He graduated with honors with a psychology degree from Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University. Then he furthered his studies at the University of Pittsburgh under the Heinz Foundation Research Fellowship and worked with the Center for Urban Education. While he's not out psychoanalyzing children, trying to figure out creative ways to teach and reach them, he's a photographer and a certified canon professional. Let's give the bros a warm bookshelf welcome to the newest member of the podcast, Mr. Donovan Jeffrey Snipe. Oh, Donovan. Bow wow. Oh, one kills in the building. Oh, one or no one. Hey, Donovan, man. Glad to have you on. Glad to be here. Absolutely, brother. Damn so glad to have you, brother. Heard so much about you. Hope all good. Speaking of heard so much about somebody, uh, Harvey and Walt, tell me about y'all weekend. I heard that y'all got up with each other and you was able to see the outreach center. Yeah, yeah. Walt came down to holler at me, man. That was that was pretty slick, man. He brought the missus down, and um, I let him tell you about it because I'm always curious to hear people's um, impressions of the center. Yeah, so I was in town uh, over the weekend in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, so I was able to visit Harvey, man. Um, me and the wife came down. We came down for personal reasons. Her her auntie was in a nursing home, so we was able to uh, make pretty much kill two birds in one stone. So I hit Harvey up. He was like, "Dog, once you land, here's a couple of uh, events you can get in do while you in town. X Y Z. Bro gave me a whole itinerary, set me out. You know what I'm saying? Good, good, good. <laughs> and good. then uh, this is what the brothers do, you know. So then he was like, "Bro, if you're not doing nothing tomorrow, pull up to the." Uh, the center so i pulled up to the center so from the outside uh the center looks pretty much like a normal size but when you walk inside the center man when i say it's like an oasis of education of learning twenty-seven thousand square feet of i'll say african-american history i'll say uh, uh drug rehab i'll say 27,000 square feet, pretty much all in one as far as the education center, what you need in the urban community, man. A lot of free services, a lot of a lot of uh, intellectual people as far as women to help build that place. And Brother Harvey, um, I know he's uh, gracious to be a part of the, the organization, man. So Yeah, a friend of a friend. Hmm. So uh, Walter is my friend. Harvey is my friend. Harvey and Walter are friends because they are my friends, a friend of a friend. Friendship is essential to the soul. Yes, friendship is very essential to the soul. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Dove, let me get one more. One, no, one, let me get one more. <laughs> There's no true friendship without self-abnegation and self-sacrifice. All right, all right. <laughs> they teach y'all something in Ohio. Oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, man. Hey, Harvey, plug your center. It's Care the Healing Center. There you go. Care with two A's, C-A-A-R-E-I-N-C.org. We've been around for 24 years in Durham um, working to help people have access to uh, health care. 
Um, we've done a lot of work around substance abuse, mental health, um, HIV case management, homelessness. Um, and right now we're just really trying to make our claim in improving the lives of people uh, from vulnerable backgrounds. And so that's pretty much all of us. So uh, really happy to be there right downtown Durham. Um, the building was, was, was uh, the organization was founded by uh, some very, very phenomenal women. Uh, Dr. Sharon Elliott Bynum, her sister Pat Amici, and the other sister Carolyn Hinton. And they just uh, gave Durham um, no excuses with the work that they do. So, yeah, happy to be there. All right, so let's get right into it. Last week on The Miseducation of a Negro, we covered the author, Dr. Carter Gottwin Wilson, and provided a brief history on who he was and how Black History Month came to be. Then we covered the prefix all the way to chapter four. So this week, we're going to pick up at chapter five. Failure to make a living. <laughs> so uh, this. Here we go. Yeah. So this chapter uh, points out the problems of attending colleges and receiving technical knowledge, but fail to learn its applications. In some cases, the technology or the application is so antiquated by the time that they graduate, they are not able to apply what they learn in school. So we're talking about in the uh, early 20th century. Man, he talking about today, man. The Negroes of today are unable to employ one another, and the whites are inclined only to call when their own race have been taken care of. That's the day. Right. But I'm talking about when he wrote it. <laughs> he had a lot of foresight because if you think about it, when you read this book, you realize that we haven't really came that far. Let me read this quote out of the book. What the Negroes are now being taught does not bring into mind into harmony with life as they must face it. When a Negro student works his way through college by polishing shoes, he does not think of making a special study of the science underlying the production and distribution of leather and its products so he may someday own a shoe shop. The Negro boy sent to college by a mechanic seldomly dreams of learning mechanical engineer engineering to build up a foundation his father has laid so when he graduates, he can apply what he learned to help his daddy grow his company. The Negro girl who goes to college hardly wants to return to her mother if she works at the dry cleaners. But what she should come back with is sufficient knowledge of physics and chemistry and business administration to transform her mother's dry cleaners into a modern steam laundry. A white professor of a university recently resigned his position to become rich by running a laundry for Negroes in the Southern city. A Negro college instructor would have considered such suggestion an insult. The so-called education of a Negro college grad lends them to throw away opportunities which they have and go in search of those which they cannot find. Does he say dry cleaner in your book? No, I got the uh, international version. And y'all got the. Uh, <laughs> and y'all got the King James. I'm still reading the King James over here, dog. I'm reading the King James version. Ain't no damn dry cleaner in 1925, dog. 1933, dog. Slow down. Yeah, dog. I, I changed it up so it can apply to today. You know what I'm saying? He used a lot of archaic terms. So, you know, I changed it up. Washerwoman. Washerwoman is the is the title. Washerwoman. <laughs> hey, but you know what? Um, I, Walter. <laughs> Stay with your question, though. But I just want to be clear with that. You know, he won't talk about no dry cleaner. He was talking about a washerwoman. It's the same thing, bro. It's the same idea. It's not the same thing. A dry cleaner is technology. I dig it. Hey, a question. I have a question for you, Walt. Um, it's it's like a two part question, and I thought about you when I read that quote. When you was growing up uh, in a home where you had the rare opportunity to experience a household, and with your daddy was building a business and growing a legacy, and with you being a college athlete and endeavor on doing things beyond your father's vision, you somewhat fall into what Doctor Woodson is speaking of. Can you let the listeners in on your mindset as it relates? to the family business while you were in college and at the college? And how did you find your way back into the business to grow it into where it is today? Take your time. Okay. So like my mindset growing up was that like, 
because I seen my dad bust his ass from from sun up to sundown, and uh, he I felt like anything was obtainable, you know, because like as you know, my dad right now he he um he he started the asphalt paving business, which I run right now today, um, but he also had other businesses as I was growing up, and it was all pretty much trial and error. Uh, I had an uncle that. My mother's, which is my mother's brother, he did asphalt paving for a living, but he didn't have a license. So my dad pretty much got the blueprint from him and then started, you know, buying trucks. And then from that point, you know, he was able to obtain trucks and get his license and obtain contracts, et cetera, et cetera. But to answer your question, as far as my mindset, when I was a kid, I always saw my dad working. So just me understanding like how a man supposed to be a man supposed to protect, provide and teach. Now, one of the ways that he provided was being able to always have, always have money for like, you know, vacation and being able to have that financial freedom that some of us are not privy uh, to having or whatnot, you know? So as I got into my early years of playing sports, like, you know, high school football, and then I was a standout athlete and was able to receive a scholarship to the university of Toledo. then I was got into my studies. My main focus at the time when I was in college was to get to the NFL. And anybody playing college football, if that that wasn't their focus, they'd be lying to you. You know, as those dreams, uh, you know, started to fade away and, and not be a reality, what I, I had to realize is that okay, what's my options? You know, what are my options? And then who who is Walter Atkins outside of the the you know the football player? And that's a harsh reality that so many athletes got to deal with sooner or later at some point in time in their athletic Absolutely. career, you know? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure Harvey had to deal with that as well too, you know, but it just, it depends on, it depends on you as a person and how you deal with it. That's a, that's a harsh reality we got to deal with. Right. So me, uh, I, I work for two companies outside. I work for a couple companies. I work for a transportation company. And then after that, I, I went on to work in the nonprofit sector, but, I knew in the back of my mind at some point in time I had to I had to to come back to reality and realize that granted I'm working in 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 nonprofit sector and it's not it's not mine you know and my dad had a conversation with me he said whenever you're ready to come back home man uh the business is yours and we'll just iron out a couple of things and then from that point you know you'll be able to come on back and uh you just tell me a price and whatever that price is you can come on back. Now, that's a real unique situation that I was in because most parents aren't able to tell their son and provide their son with a price tag in which they can come back to to make their son, in short, comfortable to be able to, you know, and not and not be like a, a, a harsh fall. You know, when I when I transfer my life from Detroit, Michigan, all the way down to uh, sunny South Florida. So when I got back in when I got back in South Florida, granted I had to start from the bottom up. I started on like the shovel to, you know, running machines to later on like operating and running crews. And then later on I was privy to doing estimates and and then from that point going into, you know, business meetings and HOA meetings and uh industry meetings and and networking events, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to stand confident and stand on my own too as a man in this industry, you know, and then, you know, here I am today, uh, four, four and a half, four years later, uh, running a company as we speak, but, but yeah, man, but yeah, man, I'm one of the, you know, <clears throat> we live in a different era, man. We have an opportunity to see things differently. And I think, uh, you know, Walt's story is unique. Um, in a very similar situation, I've heard people share the same stories where their families told them to go off and do other things. You know, they didn't think that the business was going to be there in the future. You know, industries change. I think the time of period that he's talking about, you know, he's still dreaming, you know, and I don't, I don't think I understand where the critique comes from. But if you're going to have the full experience in this country as a free person, that's what comes with it. This is something real quick. I noticed in the book right. how he classifies things. All right. One, he's, he mentions the author a lot. Right. 
And I can only surmise that when he says the author, he used that in um, in lieu of saying me. Right. I went to or the I time observed period doing that. Or yeah. uh, you know, she came into my office. Right. That I think that was just a writing practice. Then he also has another classification, uneducated, then educated, then miseducated, and highly educated. Right. So he refers to these uh, classifications of people. And I think what what he's saying is the miseducated and the highly educated are too good to do the work that we've already been doing or the work that our mothers and grandmothers are doing it and turn it into a business. It's only those that are uneducated who don't have those vices in front of them can see it. And then the educated are educated enough to be able to see that. Donovan. What's up? What is, uh, what is your take from, uh, from that passage? Um, kind of the same thing. Um, I think blacks at that time and even now kind of suffer from like a, like a, like an uppity Negro syndrome. Like I'm not about to go back in that field cause I graduated from Vassa. So I don't need to do any of that anymore. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. What we should have been doing at that time is focusing on or observing how we're making our money and then trying to scale that. So he gave that example about um, the one person who might have been shining shoes to go to school, but they never thought about looking up how leather is manufactured. Leather. Um, Right. Exactly. I think black folks, they're thinking if they follow the, the, the adage of America, which is work hard and you'll get rewarded for, for your hard work, which is really not a true thing. Um, they thought that if they kept doing that, that they'll somehow make it out of their situation, either through hard work or through education, which neither one has really proven out to this day. Like we got all types of school for Negroes, but one of the black ones are really p- pumping out PhDs and MDs and black unemployment is still higher than everybody else's unemployment. So, But Donovan. Yeah, I, I think also, man, at the end of the day, this is how I feel about it. At the end of the day, I think what he's talking about, the right, highly I think, educated I, Negroes, right? They just feel as if what their parents did, uh, those industries that their parents was in is pretty much beneath them, you know? It's like beneath me. I don't want to get down in the trenches. Mom and daddy did that. Okay, cool. Mom and daddy did it. But at the same time, um, as the author gave an example of, it says a white professor of a university recently resigned his position to become rich by running a laundry for Negroes in in a southern city. Because that is that's that in short is I it's mean, come them. on, man. Let's come, that's what I'm saying. I think I think I think it sounds good. I think that was one of those white professors that couldn't make it in academia. So he quit and he took advantage of the, the black folks in the neighborhood the same way the international folks do. Is it smart or is it predatory? Or is it that they couldn't make it in the world that they were in, so they took advantage of our situation? We talking about people who have been traumatized, man. And trauma makes you do, people be trying to escape go. this stuff. There we go. There we go. You know, we can't overlook that. I think that's the part that I don't, you know, I love this book, man. And I love Carter G. And this is the first time I've ever had an opportunity to take a, a um, it's not even the opposition, just a, a, a different lens at, at what he's saying and how, how, how it's not so simple to say that you just miseducated fool Negro. That's not what he's saying. But it, it can sound like that at times. I love picking the sentences out one by one and just making them sound like. You know like, what else? You know. And, uh, and, and, you and know. he's kind of like weighing in upon the, um, on the Booger T, W.E.B. the Bullets debate uh, in this book as well. Like, so when he was talking about, like, there's a shot at, like when I read this book, I saw a shot at W. E. B. Du Bois. Hey, when hey he Lenny, said, can you? Sorry, to cut you off, Lenny. Can you explain the debate to the readers, listeners? Yeah. All right. So the debate between W. E. B. Du Bois and uh, Booker T. W. E. B. Du Bois was like saying that, look, we can uh, gain our freedom and our independence based up on our intellect. We don't have to uh, we don't have to shine their shoes and do these menial work. They're going to respect us because they're going to look at us and say, you know what? You are a man and you're smart and you're capable of doing 
things uh, on a higher intellectual level. We can write literature. We could uh, paint. We we know the fine arts. We could do uh, engineering and um, medicine. Whereas, and, and we're going to do it, and we're going to be in your face. Whereas W, uh, well, Booger T. Washington is like, you know what? We're so behind economically. Let me. And there's no way that we can. Ki- What's up? Go ahead. Finish. There's Go ahead, no finish. way that we can. Ki- Oh, there's no way we can catch up. So we what we need to do is put our heads down, learn a trade, make yourself so valuable where they have to come to you and do business with you and then build up your, your commerce and then try to catch up uh, and try to catch up financially. So we're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to uh, we're, we're not going to kneel uh, during the uh, protest. We're going to put our head down okay. and go get this okay. money until us as a Let race, me, until we catch up. Check this out. I'm just going to give you some birth dates. Get this Booker T. Money. Washington, 1856 to 1915. Carter G. Wilson, 1875 to 1950. W.B. Du Bois, 1868 to 1963. Man, they arguing with a ghost, man. <laughs> hey, but there was also something in this book. There's another quote I'm going to read. Uh, there was something in this book where we was talking about um, how college didn't prepare us for life after college. And we still go through that today. Because a lot of us go to college and we think that once we get our degree, we're going to come out making enough money where we can sustain ourselves, get a nice apartment in a nice part of the neighborhood, get a car and start building up our wealth. Right. But that is so far from the truth. So, so far from the truth. And uh, some things that we forget about in college is the the actual application of what we learn and we gain that through our internships. So the book says recently the author saw the need for the change of attitude when the young woman came almost directly to his office after graduation from business school to seek employment. After hearing her story, he finally told her that he would give her a trial at $15 a week. $15 a week, she cried. (laughs) I cannot live off that, sir. (laughs) I don't see why not. (laughs) <laughs> I don't see why you can't, he replied. <laughs> and you have lived for some time already. And you say you never had permanent employment and you have none at all now. But a woman has to dress and pay board, she said. And how can she do that on such a penance? The amount offered was small, but it was a great deal more than she was worth at the present. That's In low. fact, during the first six or nine <laughs> months low. of her connection with some enterprise, it would be more service to her then she will be to the firm coming out of school without experience. She would be a drag on the business until she learns to discharge some definite functions in it. Instead of requiring the firm to pay her, she should be paying it for training her <laughs> Negro business today. Then finds the miseducated employees. It's heaviest burden. So, she oh, coming out me. of school. She thinking like, you need to pay me $65,000. I got a degree from North Carolina A&T. A&T. Aggie Price. Yeah, man. I, I hey, man, one, you I, how much rent costs? <laughs> Shit, rent too damn high. What your man say? Man, so look, that's a lot That's a lot to unpack, <laughs> y'all. Think about it, though, man. Like, I mean, that's a woman talking, bro. She's yeah. not trying to be bent over somewhere, t- being taken care of by no man, no heavy hand. Man, she trying to take care of herself. Yeah, but she also, in, but but at some but at some part though, he's right though, bro. Think about it. some point what he's even saying that is was right, controversial though, back then, right? Uh, like, bro, I mean, it's right. It's it's right, it's right for the times, and it's also right as far as him running the business, bro. You should be, you should. I know. Granted, she may can't take uh, not getting paid because of the fact she's fresh out of school. She got student loans. She has to pay. On top of that. She wants to be able to make some kind of meaningful way to be able to take care of her yeah, life. Probably, I don't know. You know? Not back then. Uh, school was cheap, yeah, but you school still got bills you want to pay as far as like to, to living wise. And when what he's saying, he's saying like, well, hell, for the first six months, you working for me, you might you better off paying me because you you more so a disservice because you're gonna be dragging me along as far as business wise. I gotta hold your hand. I mean, that's real though. I mean, to teach you. 
And that's like about four hundred dollars a week in their time too. Uh, if you do the yeah, man, up I mean, for the inflation, she's getting paid about four hundred dollars a week, which is still not a lot. But she didn't make more money than that. Shit. Considering she was making zero dollars a week <laughs> prior to that. <laughs> Sugar Avery had spunk. <laughs> Sugar Avery. <laughs> hey man, but hey, but hey, but real talk. I think that's that same thing is going on today, man. Like when kids get out of school, we have an we have an illusion of like what we should be making, and then that harsh reality sets in probably about three to four months. I my cousin, he came out of school uh, actually two years ago. Came out of school, he got his. Uh, MBA from a university up in Michigan. He like, cuz, I said, Walt, bro, I'm not taking a job under 75000 Bro, I got my MBA. These motherfuckers got to pay me. His exact words. He said, cuz, these motherfuckers got to pay me. I say, cuz. So, the first, I, I say, I say, man, you know what? Sometimes you, you never want to be that older cousin because he looks up to me. You never want to be the older cousin that reigns on somebody parade but you always want to give them encouragement but also a concrete understanding of how this shit really gonna go so i say how many jobs have you uh have you how many applications have you filled out so far he said probably about seven i said okay what kind of jobs this law firm this uh this logistics company xyz alpha okay cool then i say on the application what kind of uh uh skills and requirements they all asking for at least four years of experience I say, well, well, cuz, how do you think you, you're going to get hired at, in a situation where they're requiring four years of, of experience and you have zero years of experience? Well, his, court, his answer was, well, how do I gain experience when I've never had an internship? And I was like, damn. So basically, you got to come from the back door. <laughs> you got all this education. You got to still come in through the back door. He has no idea. Uh, and if you would have told him to come work for you, he'd be like, nah, I ain't trying to Absolutely do that. Not. I ain't right. trying to, right. you know, right. I ain't trying to do that. He basically. Chapter six, the highly educated Negro leads the masses. How an educated Negro can thus leave a church of his own people and accept such Jim Crowism has always been a puzzle. He cannot be a thinking man. It may be sort of a slave psychology which causes this preference for leadership of the oppressor, but a thinking man will rather be behind the times and have his self-respect than compromise his manhood by accepting segregation. There's no way I could turn my nose up at my institution so much where I go and sit in the pew right next to a whole church of Trump supporters. Ain't no way in hell. And I think that's what, and I think that's what the author saying. He said, "I'll lead a church before I do that." I had somebody uh, ask me. I was talking to uh, one of my white friends. He lives in um, Alabama, and he kind of does the same work I do. And we was talking about, you know, um, he was saying, "Man, you know, me and you, we share the same ideology when it comes to business enterprise, and you know, uh, thinking of like self respect and things like that." And he says, you sound like a conservative. And I said, I'm kind of am a conservative, but no, I don't think I am. Because the more I think about it, there's nothing conservative about me. And he said, well, you know, uh, your your views on business, you're very conservative, you know, uh, with your entrepreneurial mindset. He said, you should vote Republican because their views are in line with you. He said, when you start your business, don't you don't want to be bogged down with a lot of regulations and taxes? And I said, I looked at him and I said, you know what? I'd rather pay, I'd rather pay high taxes and be regulated and have my dignity intact than to vote for a bigot. Trump is a bigot. Mitch McConnell, a bigot. And everybody else that's on uh, that's in the Republican Party right now who circled their wagon around Trump to exonerate him from those obvious and blatant allegations, they're all a biggest to me. And I'd rather vote against my own political interest than to vote for a bigot, because at the end of the day. You would go against my interest anyway, if you're a bigot. That was very passionate, bro. Very passionate. So what 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 made you come to that what made you come to that point within the conversation? Because he was he was trying to say that I should vote Republican, and I was like, 
just like in the church, you know. That was his invitation to Coonville, uh, and he rejected his invitation to Coonville. (laughs) He was being invited. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That was your invitation, man. You just missed it. You just missed it, buddy. The Coon train is coming. Come on out here, buddy. Yeah. Get the sunscreen ready. Get the sunscreen ready. Come on out here, buddy. If I would have, if I would have changed my party, there probably would have been a check and opportunity in the mail for me, like uh, the next day. Uh, uh, when I came the back from uh, when I came back from Alabama, <laughs> you know my new position. That's interesting, but blacks at that time, for the most part, were actually Republicans and probably the most conservative people on the planet. So it is interesting that he brought that up and that he said that. Um, my view of the Republican Party, kind of just like my view in America, is like on paper they all sound actually excellent. Small government. People taking care of one one another, um, not so much regulation that I can't run a business, yada yada yada. But in actual everyday practice, they are like you said, bigots. Like they don't actually follow. Like even Republicans right now, if you like were to read a Republican platform and then juxtapose that to the person they choose to be their leader, he don't follow none of that shit. He's not a church going man. He's not really a family. Well, he's a family man, but he believes in creating multiple families with multiple foreign women. Um, So on paper, all of that stuff sounds nice, but we're dealing with people and we're dealing with white supremacists of that time and of this time. So really no matter what system, no matter what um, ideology they say that they're going to use, they're always going to default back to that. I'm scared of you niggas. So I'm going to look out for me and mine. So you can be a Republican, but just like you said, it's not really going to uh, change anything. That was one of his quotes. I can't remember where it is in the book, but that's one of his quotes. He's like, you know, it doesn't matter what revolutionary party or what force takes it over. Those who have not learned to do for themselves were fared no different in the end than what they were in the beginning. So, yeah, that's a Carter G quote. It's in there somewhere. Yeah, he was talking about, um, I think he was talking about socialism. Oh, where was that? Yeah, exactly. When the Negroes was trying to play play with the socialists, mm-hmm. you know. There's a, a civil rights leader from Florida named Harry T. Moore. He he was the one that got in his car and was driving up and down through the back roads of Florida telling the uh, the black Floridians that they need to change their party from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And he started writing letters to the NAACP and explaining why that we need to uh, switch from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And uh, they bombed his house and he died on December 5th on Christmas Day, 1951. But that was one of the things that uh, that he was very famous for. He was one of the ones that got the black people to switch from the Republican to the Democratic Party. His name is Harry T. Moore. And let me let me throw let me throw some wild something something out there because I I want I think I think Donovan is on to something. I think at times, Lenny, I understand exactly why that white man was rocking with you. I've had those same experiences, and I I try to say I was a, a pro black Republican. That's how I would call myself a pro black conservative. I would say more so pro black conservative than pro black Republican because I. Just saying Republican don't sound cool at all. Conservative, I'm trying to hold on to my blackness. You know, I try to play it like that. Um, But on a whole nother level, think about a curb, like a curb on the street. When the last time you seen a jagged curb? You know, and these things can go on for miles and miles. And they might go down and come back up, but just... There's a curve that goes on for miles and miles. There's a yellow line in the middle of the road that goes on for miles and miles. And rarely, if ever, do you see a jagged in them joints. Like somebody can keep it straight. And I think that that's the human, the human, we we are all connected, man. I love being black and I love getting into my black shit. But it's something about humanity that is designed to work and fit together. Preach. I agree. And no. it's, it's it, hard to be you know a bigot when you're in and the presence of the people that you're a bigot to. Exactly. It's, you know what I mean? So, so it, you know, if you empathize with them only to let them live, <laughs> because there ain't a lot of options out here, man. 
They really aren't. You know what I'm saying? So you 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 have to learn how to see what they perceiving to be their position might be because the the bigotry eye is only going to breed a hate that you can't you can try man but people ain't fared well with trying to live off of that hate. i agree um another thing in this chapter he was talking about the power of the black church and he um he was talking about the power because in this chapter, he's talking about the power of the back church and how it galvanize our people. And if we use it right, it could be a tool that can propel us to the next level. And then in the following chapter, he talks about why it's not used as a tool to propel us to the next level because it's so fractured into different like divisions. Right. So he uh, in chapter in chapter uh, six, he talks about like the different denom- uh, denominations of Christianity, like the Methodists and the Protestants. And he talks about how they broken up and how they became Methodists and how they became Protestant. He kind of gave like a little history on that. But um, I wanted to read this. He said the Negro church, however, although not a shadow of what it ought to be, is the great asset of the race. It is a part of the capital that the race must invest to make its future. The Negro church has taken the lead in education in schools of the race. It has supplied a form for thought of the highly educated Negro. It has originated a large portion of business control by Negroes. And in many cases, it has made it possible for Negro professional men to exist. It is unfortunate then that these classes do not do more to develop the institution and thus neglecting it. They are throwing away what they have to obtain something which they think they need. I think, uh, I think Carter G always romanticized <laughs> uh, with the idea that everybody. <laughs> yeah. no, I think, yeah, I think he, I think he did that based upon believing that everybody should have a, should have an overall goal as far as helping the people, helping helping the people for, for the greater good. Well, being for the people and being for the greater good. Yeah, but you know? I, I think, but what he's talking about though, Walt, he's not directing it to anybody. He's directing in this passage. He's directing it to the people who can help and the people who claim they want to help. So you have like the uh, the deacons and the deaconesses in the church. Instead of getting the church and getting it back together, y'all just going to start talking and gossiping and then start breaking off and talking about what's wrong instead of coming to the meetings and helping and, uh, and patch this thing and get it back together. And, and send and, and send Deacon Larry as to jail for stealing uh, the offering and, and selling us out. And and identify the the bad um the bad apple, kicking them out, and shore it up, and let's use this thing for good. Slippery slope, homie. Why is that a slippery slope? That bad apple connotation in a oh, space okay. where you, where you supposed to be forgiven, and God is oh, yeah, the one yeah, who yeah, judges. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. Like, it's like, yeah. what do we want to believe in? Yeah, you know, is I, it man's yeah. law or is it the Bible, the word, the scripture? Because scriptures say, but a man oh, wrote man, that. It's difficult, man. But a man wrote that as well. Yeah, a man um, wrote that so too. It's all man's law. You know, it's difficult, man. It's a it's a very difficult critique, man. I'm a, I'm listening to it. It took a hold to me that time. I ain't been in church in in almost ten years, man. And that's not, you know. I'm not bragging on that. I'm someone who went to church faithfully from the time that I was 16 years old when I could drive myself um, to that 10-year departure that i just spoken to. And that's, you know, I, don't, I, 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 I can't always explain what I feel. I do feel bad, but I don't feel bad. Why don't you feel bad? Because I know why I did it. You know what I'm saying? I know why I, I – know, I know – what the reasons were behind it and um, the reasons why I was going probably wouldn't be the same reasons anymore. Yeah, we don't want to, um, 
We don't want to peel that oh, onion no. back. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> now I was just wondering if it. But I think yeah, hold but, on, hold on, hold on. But, but, but so like so 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 in school, let's talk about what happens to the educated Negro. So when I'm at Purdue, two things are happening. On one side, I'm studying career and technical education, which is vocational ed. And they taking you all over, you know, they telling the story of education as the story of the United States formation. And you're getting a very white dominated perspective of how they put things together. On the other hand, I'm in this, these cultural I mean, curriculum studies program with the social education and political agendas of education. And you got all these, you know, so you, you know, you, you, you learning, you know, all these different theories and all these thinkers and stuff and you start applying those skill sets to your reading of the Bible. Or you start going to some ministerial trainings. And you just start using all your your faculties of thinking. And stuff don't start looking the same no more, man. And then you're like, what the hell's going on around here, man? And then you, when you show somebody what you saw, and you realize that they may have saw it too, but they'll be like, shh. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> My next call. <laughs> Get from around here. Hush that noise, boy. <laughs> you better hush for why Jesus strike you down right where you stand. That's that spookism, man. No, and it's hard, bro. Like once you get out of that hill, once you get out of that hill, man. Learn the devil. You never got brought you from so far. (laughs) Yeah, you 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 best to put them books down, teaching you all that stuff, feeding your mind. They say his name (laughs) Lucifer. It ain't nothing but the devil. Lucifer is focus on God. That's another word for enlightenment. You better shut off your light bulb and blow out your lamp. Before you, before you get struck down. Man, you you supposed to be the light of the world, man. Let your light shine. That's what he said, do. But see, that's the thing about it, man. Once you start reading said, this shit and you start saying, look, man. Chapter one and chapter two say Don't different try to things about the it. same Listen, thing. What the hell just trying. happened? Yeah. It's beyond you. How did no. I not see that? Don't try to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard. I mean, I understand why these people would come back because you got to think. Booker T. Washington talked about riding down the countryside and seeing black men fall out in the in the field so they wouldn't have to work no more. So these preachers, you know, who's to say that right. they are anointed? Y'all, in the who, book, what does that mean anymore? Let me read you what they, he said. They're any more as qualified. evidence of the depth in which Harvey is talking about. I mean, as the institution has gone, a resident of Cincinnati recently reported a case of exploitation by a railroad man who lost his job and later all his earnings in the game of den of thieves in that city to refinance himself. He took an old black frock coat and a Bible and went into the heart of Tennessee where he conducted at various points, a series of distracted protracted meetings, which nailed him 290 converts to the faith and $400 in church money. He was enabled therefore to return to the game in Cincinnati. And he's still in the lead. And the other cases are frequently reported. God still was pleased. (laughs) Hey, listen, he said this dude was down in the dice game. He said, and he lost everything, Come man. On, he lost his 401k. He lost his pension. He was like, dang, man, what I'm going to do? I got to pay child support. <laughs> he said, I got to pay child support. So he picked up his Bible. He grabbed him an old uh, black robe, put on him one of them you little white like uh, mono collars. And went down to the uh, middle of Tennessee and started preaching. And he he put him up a tent and he started having him a tent revival. After a while, he had 99 converts (laughs) and $400 in his pocket. So, man, $400 in your pocket, like $40,000 back then. So he was like, man, I'm up now. 
So he got back in his Cadillac, he drove back up to Tennessee. I mean, to uh, with that. to Cincinnati, Ohio, that. and got back in the dice game. And he said, and he's he still ain't. in the lead. Like, <laughs> like he called him on FaceTime, say, "What you doing, dog? I'm still up." <laughs> He's still in the league. <laughs> man, hey, that story is funny as hell, but it's hard to believe, though, man. But it's funny as hell, man. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, no, you no, know, no, it's no. it's just the folk. It's just <laughs> he the said. Folk. But the dice game was still going on after, <laughs> after, after, after the 90 converts. Hey, man. <laughs> still going on. No, no. He, the dice game was still going on. He went back in there. He said 10 or 4. He said, <laughs> he said I got 5 on 10 or 4. Hey, he drove from Tennessee to Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio, bro. The dice game, the yeah, dice game down, was still going on. They know him in Tennessee. No. <laughs> No, oh. he went back to the dice game, dog. <laughs> no, that's how the dice games be, dog. That's a long dice game. <laughs> Whew. Chapter 8 Professional Education Discouraged. Negroes then learned from their oppressors to say to their children that there were certain careers into which they should not go because they would have no chance therein for development. A number of places young men were discouraged and frightened away from certain professions by poor showing made by those trying to function in them. Few had the courage to face this ordeal. And some professional schools and institutions for the Negroes were closed about 30, 40 years ago, partly on this account. This was especially true of law schools closed during the wave of legislation against the Negro at the very time the largest possible number of Negroes needed to know the law for the protection of their civil and political rights. In other words, the thing which the patient needed the most to pass the crisis was taken from him that he might more easily die. Think about that. So, we were dis- Think about what? Think about what he just said. We was discouraged from being doctors because uh because of how hard they was making it. We was discouraged from voting because of the um of the voting laws that they had in place of having to memorize the constitution or getting beat up to vote or taking a, a, a reading or a, a aptitude test before you can vote. There was things put in place for a reason to stop us from doing these things. Now today we so woke where we think we smarter than the system right. saying, you know what? I ain't going to vote because it doesn't matter. You have failed right into their trap. Imagine if we did vote. Imagine if we voted for the mayor, the um, the commissioner, the Senate, the House of Representatives. Let's say we had representation at a representation in the highest level of the law enforcement in your city, the mayor, the uh, city commissioner who allocates the money, the the school board, the president, the senator of your state, your your governor. Imagine if all these branches of law were were infiltrated by like-minded people, people who think like you and from your culture. You know how hard it will be to pass laws that it mess with us? It will be hard, but also you have to make sure that the people in those positions are on code uh, for the greater good. But I get your point, what you're saying, though. That's why we, we vote the people in that we know. Um, I sound like... I sound like Killer Mike when I say this. But you, you vote the people in that you grew up with that was in your church. You grow. You vote the people in that you know from your exactly. neighborhood. You you know them people. You know what they cut from, because if they if they cut up, you can call their mama, you know, or your grandma can call them, or your auntie can call them. You know these people. <laughs> so check this out. Cointel Pro took place from 1956 Speak on to it. 1971. Speak on it. I'm talking. I'm talking Carter G. Wilson. I'm, call, I'm talking W.B. Du Bois. I'm talking the hey, Black Harvey, Panthers. I'm talking Martin Luther King. I'm talking Malcolm X. Uh, I'm talking Harvey, Marcus Garvey. It was before that. It was before you that. You feel me? Hey, but Harvey, can you please explain to the listeners what is COINTELPRO? Man, I'm talking about an FBI program where, you know, we're talking about a counterintelligence program where we're looking for you know, people who may disturb the masses. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, black messiahs. 
you know, today they're called black. Um, I think they're called black. Uh, shit, I forget what they call today. Black. Nah, black extremists. Black identity extremists. Black identity extremists. Yeah, that's what they call them today. Yeah. Yeah. But we're talking about, you know, I know a lot of black people who want to work for the FBI. Okay, so who you gonna who you gonna infiltrate? And I think that's what ends up happening, man. So it's real easy for us to end up doing the work against you know ourselves because we gotta do we're trying to get jobs, we're trying to get in. These people who are not what? finding jobs, what what are they doing? Then they gotta go to the underworld. So the underworld is serving a purpose because these people can't work in the big jobs. So now you get to work for the government, and what did the government ask you to do? Spy on your people. So you know we we learned this trust. They, I mean, it's a great Cold tool. Tail, it is an excellent tool. We forget that there is a effort to make life difficult for black people, and he's not speaking to that at all. I think he I is. I see what he's talking about. Okay, okay. He, nah. I think we're missing out on this. It's, it's, it's some real life violence happening, man. What'd you say, what'd you say Donovan? No, I was going to say, I think what he's, he's saying is that there's no real effort. It's recognized that there's things stacked against black folks, but there's no, there, there's no organized or no agreed upon ideology. Like, there's an idea of like the black leader, like where the black leaders, who are the black leaders, but the idea of a leader of a people only is applied to black folks. Cause when you ask people, well, who's the Asian leader or who's the white leader or who's the Indian leader? It, it doesn't even sound like it makes sense because it doesn't. they don't have, yeah. they don't have a particular leader. They just have a code we do for each other and we make sure the next one comes up. All of them do that. Whereas America's code is just boycott black and everybody but, boycotts black. But, but throwing that co-intel pro, on top of that, then Donovan, now you got a system to where we are being systemically taught to be extra un, untrusting. I mean, uh, you know, of each other because we've seen our own groups get infiltrated by our own people. Yeah, you know? I mean, but this has been happening before in COINTELPRO. Pro. That's been happening since the plantation, so that's not like a, a new technique. So basically, he's saying, don't even try to be an engineer. Because you're going to waste your time going to school and waste your time getting a a, a, a PE because you're not going to get hired anywhere. So don't go do it, right? Because they're saying in right. the back of their mind, if they do do it, one of them Negroes we're going to have to let in. Then we're going to filtrate. We, then they're going to infiltrate us. But if we discourage them from doing it, then we ain't got to worry about it. Then he goes so on to he's say, taking that and he's applying it to the person today that's woke saying, I'm not going to vote. Uh, that's a stretch. Now, I think what he's trying to say is like now, instead of the conversation being don't become a lawyer because nobody will hire you, it's now don't vote because there's nobody there for you where, where we're exactly. in a time that we're supposed to be participating in this political process the most. We need it the most. Everything's getting gutted. We, we need it in everything from your school board to Think Everything. about what just happened over the last year with the uh with the selection of Brent Kavanaugh. We didn't have enough representation to, to stop that from happening. Think and then if, instead of us having a reaction of like revolution or revolt, we go back to our church scenes and it's like, well, this is just the way things are. We'll make it in the by and by. Where in reality, we should all be saying, fuck that. Let's let's tear everything up of theirs, not ours, of course, but because it's obvious it's not for us and we need to, we need a change. We need a, a drastic and radical change. But black folks then and even now have been discouraged from doing that because if you make the mass mad, something bad will happen to you. And even, um, I think Christ Walson said this one time in a book where she was talking to this young boy who said um, he was afraid to fight for black people just because anytime you fight for black people, you wind up dead. And that's, kind of always been the case like Martin Luther King fought for black folks he got shot Malcolm X fought for black folks he got killed all right hold, hold on hold on y'all hold on y'all um a little history a little history right quick y'all um y'all y'all ever heard of John Brown yes uh he was a slave abolitionist who uh who John yeah, Brown John Brown the, the white guy 
Yeah, he was a slave abolitionist who felt in his heart that slavery wasn't right. And he was called by the Lord to take drastic actions. So he came up with this plan to leave a massive slave rebellion and pitched his idea to Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. So they they looked at each other. Right. And then they look at they look right. back at him and then they looked at each other. And they was like, shit, this motherfucker crazy. <laughs> that white boy crazy. We, uh, that white boy crazy. totally against slavery <laughs> and fighting as hard as we can to end it. Exactly. But we ain't trying to die for this freedom. We trying to finesse this freedom. Finesse this freedom. You said finesse this freedom. I think, and that quote also, man. I, I think I think finesse this freedom also like ties into today's society too, man. We trying to we trying to get out of poverty, man. A lot of this stuff goes back now, into we- economic castration economic freedom yeah like dog like we're just trying to get out of poverty man we are <laughs> in some shape form or fashion yeah. man and we'll do almost and we as a people we'll do almost again. anything to get out of poverty go against our own people you gotta have the underworld you can't do it on the straight exactly you gotta have all spheres of society you gotta have your politician you gotta have your dope boy you gotta have your thugs you gotta have your teachers you gotta have your doctors you do, and that's what that's what makes the argument about the black people who are threats get assassinated very troubling, because we still here, you know. And I mean, I've had bumps in the road that would appear that okay, he was a threat, he had to go. I don't, I don't know if it's always that though, but I do know I'm still here, and there are people who I think are good people who still work in those spaces, and I don't think. It becomes difficult just to say that all the good ones got taken out. Cause damn, it's a whole lot of us still here. And well, here's the thing, man. How do you define a threat? That's what I'm saying, and that's what the threat had. The threat has to be able, like the threat to white people, in my opinion, is being able to take resources. Once you start taking resources from them, their families, taking food from their plate from a a, a wide variety of white people. Then you become a threat. Yeah, dog. I speaking speaking of this man and being discouraged, we did have some people, uh, who who defied all odds, and some people who didn't let that uh their brain taint them. Taint them. Have you ever heard of a woman named Rebecca Lee Crumpler? I, I can't say that I have. Oh, put me on. So game. uh. The story of um, Rebecca Lee Crumpler was that she graduated in 1864, like a year before the slaves were freed from New England, from New England Female Medical College. And then shortly after that, she she started her practice and she was only working on poor black women and children. And then shortly um, after that, the Civil War was was over and that was a need for a lot of uh, doctors to come down south to treat these new freely slaves. So once again, the Freedoms Bureau. When we talked about the Freedoms Bureau um, last week in the episode, they had the Freedom Bureau had a medical department, a medical division, and so you know she tied up her boots and uh, she packed her bags and she kissed her family and she said, "You know what? I got to go do God's work down south. My people need me." And she was the first black female physician in America. And during that time, she was the only black female physician in America. So she Man, it was a black women all over the place healing support. people, though. Don't get that twisted. Nah, respect, though. Shout out to Rebecca. <laughs> Trained physician. What that mean, man? Because Hotel Harvey going to uh, correct <laughs> Hotel Harvey. Train. <laughs> she, she was the first black trained physician. So these slaves down south were suddenly free and they had nowhere to go. And some of them took up residence like in abandoned prisons, former military barracks, empty churches and refugee camps. And as a result, they started getting sick and disease was easily passed on to one another. So they were working... Um, so she went down there. She was stressed out. She was working with limited resources. And every time she would go and ask the uh, Freeman's Bureau for more resources, uh, sources like more beds, more sheets and more uh, antibiotics, they was denying her. So she saw how hard it was, which goes back to Carter Woodson saying that, you know, um, 
there's no chance for uh in that space check for this development. Out. You know, because they're going to make it. Hold on. Go ahead. All go right, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Because I wouldn't no, finish I, the yeah, story. I you, you all right. Go. So, so you know, she saw all these people were dying, and the government was saying, you know, that's manifest destiny. That's inevitable because black people are inferior, and uh, and nature is taking their course. They're supposed to die when you free them. And she said, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, they ain't dying for that. You know, they're dying because they don't know how to properly take care of themselves and they're high and they need to they need a lesson on hygiene on hygiene. So she took it upon herself and she wrote this book called The Book of Medical Discourse in two parts. And it was not addressed to her colleagues or the white medical community or the segregationists. It was addressed to the black community and specifically the black mothers and nurses. But eventually she gave this book out and these people started uh, healing uh, healing themselves and the epidemic turned around. So all these people were dying. They started uh, becoming better and black people started to live. Here's another ironic twist. After that, all the Freedoms Bureau hospitals closed down except for one. And that one was in Washington, D.C. Years later, fast forward, Dr. Charles R. Drew, the man who invented the process of separating blood plasma from blood cells so we can store and ship them. Uh, He was appointed the chief of staff at the Freedman, the only Freedman's Hospital that was left standing in 1944 in Washington, D.C. So you had a black woman who was instrumental and and one of the first um, doctors that started the Freedmen's Bureau Medical Division. And then fast forward in 1944, uh, Dr. Charles R. Jew was the the head director of the hospital. Now, why did I bring up Charles uh, R. Jew? Right. Because we're talking about Dr. Carter G. Woodson, Dr. Carter G. Woodson and Charles R. Drew were really good friends, right? Dr. Charles uh, Charles R. Uh, Drew and Carter G. Wilson both won the Spingard Medal, right? And they were so good friends, it was rumors that um, Dr. Woodson was so heartbroken that uh, Dr. Drew had suddenly died in that car crash and on April 1st, 1950, that his uh he his his health got so uh his health got bad and they said he died rumored because he died two days later on April 3rd, 1950, that he died from a broken heart because his good young friend died. Because Charles Drew uh was like a son that uh Carter G. Woodson never had. And they were that close. Man, that's an awesome story, dog. Wow. That's an awesome story, man. Shout out to Charles Drew. And the Drew family. I actually went to Charles Drew Elementary School growing up. Man, man. Dude, no, man. the crash site is not not far from my spot where I live, man. The crash spot is, is not far from here at all. Is it man. a uh, historic site? Hey, how did Charles Drew die? Nah, didn't he die from, from a, a car accident? Yeah, I no, some, all right. Go, Linda, go. So, did he bleed to death or something? Yeah, man, that, that was some Betty Crocker. Uh, what happened What's was Betty? him and three other people were. Uh, heading down to Tuskegee, and it was in a bad car accident. And he bled it uh, Charles, Dr. Charles Drew was driving, and he fell asleep, and he hit an embankment, and his car flipped over and rolled over, and he was jettisoned from the car. And then once the car started uh, stopped flipping over, it rolled over him. And uh, his injuries were so bad that he suffered from brain damage, a broken leg, well, almost severed leg, a broken neck, and massive chest injuries and uh and one of the doctors was interviewed in uh, omni magazine later said that you know they they received the best treatment the problem was um dr charles r drew suffered from what is called a superior uh vena cava syndrome and basically what that is is when the um the blood is blocked from your heart to your brain and if they would have done a blood transfusion, he would have died instantly. So they did everything they could to save him, but there was uh, his injuries were so bad there was nothing they could do to save him. So that's what really happened to him. And the story of 
the conspiracy theory came about later because they was in a hospital that only uh service poor white social people. engineering but i mean i can only speculate since they were uh doctors themselves and you know it's that code the doctor for a doctor they got the best treatment and that's according We're to you know true. his friend that was in the uh, in yeah. the car accident with and it's I, learned that at, I learned that at elementary we'll be looking school, for man. something man we, yeah refusal of a we're looking for something to, to make yeah. us feel some kind of way man yeah mm-hmm. we gave away all our power yeah you said yeah we but that's not gave true away yeah, all that's, our that's, problem. that's, hey, that's man, betty crocker yeah. Yeah. thank you scholar for teaching us something i hope you enjoyed please subscribe leave us a five-star rating and share this podcast with your friends Join us next time as we wrap up Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of a Negro. And if you hadn't already, please follow us on Facebook at The Bruz Bookshelf. And remember to pick up next month's book, Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. Until next time.